One, two, three, clap. This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing a film called Enjoy Poverty. I'll kick us off. In this documentary, Dutch filmmaker Renzo Martens goes to the Congo. He interviews many poor Congolese, as well as some Western aid workers. Many people who go to work for the Peace Corps, Doctors Without Borders, UNICEF, and other such groups find that they aren't able to make much difference for Africans suffering from poverty. But while they aren't able to help the Africans very much, they often claim the experience of trying to help makes them better people. Spending time in a very poor country makes them more appreciative of what they have. It toughens them up. It gives them a sense of perspective or what have you. Martin suggests that these aid workers are benefiting more from going to the Congo than the Congolese are benefiting from having them there. If we take the Western aid workers at their word, they are having experiences that benefit them morally or spiritually, but the Congolese are not adequately compensated for their contribution. They have to endure poverty so that the Westerner can come and enjoy it. The Western travelers clearly consider the experience of poverty to be valuable. They will pay enormous amounts of money for pictures and videos of poverty, and they will go to great lengths to go to the Congo and catalog wars and malnourishment. In this way, the experience of poverty is a valuable resource that belongs to the Congolese but is appropriated by Western aid workers. It is like gold, and it is treated the same way gold is treated, as something that is in the Congo, but which the Westerner finds and claims ownership over. Martins is even more critical of the journalists and artists who are not even aid workers, but come to the Congo to take pictures and sell those pictures to Western media outlets. If a Congolese photographer takes pictures of poverty to sell to Western media, the Congolese photographer is framed as a war profiteer. But if a Western journalist does the same thing, ostensibly to raise awareness, that Western journalist is portrayed as an artist, a savior. Only the Westerner is allowed to profit from the poverty that, for Martins, is in the Congo and so belongs to the Congolese. At one stage, Martins asks a Western photographer why he owns his photographs. If there were no poor people in the Congo, there would be no one to photograph. The photographer can only sell photographs because this situation exists in the Congo. The photographer tells Martins that there are many situations like this, but that the photographer chooses the moment to take the picture. And in choosing the moment, the photograph becomes entirely his own. Martins tries to use this argument to get native Congolese photographers access to a Doctors Without Borders hospital. It doesn't work. The Westerners who run the hospital regard the native photographers as profiteers, not artists. They tell Martins that the Western photographers put a lot of work into their photographs, using expensive software, and the low-tech photos by the native artists aren't any good. This documentary came out in 2008, two years after Borat. At times, Martins plays dumb and says things that Westerners often say about the Congo or about poverty to get authentic reactions from poor Congolese. I suspect that some viewers miss the intention behind these scenes. An inattentive viewer might think Martins has a callous attitude. But in point of fact, the real Martins cooperates with Congolese artists to raise capital so that the Congolese can buy back land from Western owners. By making and selling art that depicts poverty to the Western audience, the Congolese artists can obtain Western currency, and Martins hopes that currency can be used to slowly gain control over the means of production. 
Rather than attempt to persuade the Westerner to adopt a better attitude toward the Congolese, Martins invites the Congolese to profit from the Western attitude. The Westerners will not change, but the Congolese can take advantage of their feelings. Even if they have nothing else, they own the experience of poverty. By taking control of that experience, they can use it to obtain other things, just as they might do by, say, nationalizing the gold mines. The film often gets a bit meta, as Martins invites us, and the Congolese, to consider to what degree he himself is this kind of Westerner. After all, Martins has persuaded himself that he is helping the Congolese. He thinks he is doing something for them that is more effective and more meaningful than what the ordinary Western aid workers are doing. But maybe he is just another Westerner, benefiting personally from the experience of Congolese poverty. At one point in the film, he admits that he is himself given to vanity before going for a swim. The Congolese in the background seem confused by this sudden inward turn. It has clearly been shot to give us the impression that Martins thinks he's being self-indulgent here. Is he actually being self-indulgent, or is he playing at being self-indulgent to make a point about Western self-indulgence? The question is left open, but it seems clear that Martins thinks that in the midst of this poverty, it is very peculiar that Westerners become so fixated on whether they are morally good. Instead of helping the Congolese, they are focused on whether the experience is helping them become better people. In this way, Martins suggests that even when Westerners worry about whether they are exploiting the Congolese, this is itself a way of exploiting the Congolese. If this is true, it seems hard for there to be any way a Westerner could go to the Congo without exploiting the Congolese. And this, I think, is Martin's point. If everything the Westerner does in the Congo exploits the Congolese, the only thing the Westerner can do for the Congolese is to provide them with the ability to derive the same benefits from their poverty that the Westerner derives. By creating a cadre of Congolese artists to sell the experience of Congolese poverty directly to Westerners, Martins cuts out the Western middleman. But as long as he's still part of the story, the job is not yet done. All right, let's hear what Helen has to say. This is an extremely interesting film. Very, very uncomfortable watch. But um, the discomfort, actually, I mean, in a way, we've talked about films like this um, quite frequently. It, It sort of does what it says. So there's not that much um, to say other than what it's actually saying, you know, explicitly as in in the subtext is very, very clear. But, you know, it's interesting, as Benjamin, you said that maybe some of the things could be misconstrued because um, uh, Martins is a character in his film and he's sort of playing the role of the kind of dupe as in he's, he goes on this journey to understand what's going on in, in Congo with um, these sort of people struggling with poverty and comes to take very literally the message that he interpolates from what the market, you know, what capitalism is sort of telling him, which is to then feed back to the people that he's trying to help that there's nothing for them other for the, other than for them to enjoy their poverty. But it's obviously a kind of um, second degree um, way to expose the, you know, the the abject kind of hypocrisy of the capitalist system. Um, yeah. So in a way, but but this br- bringing out bringing out what ideology papers over is very very uncomfortable. And I did a quick cursory look online, and I think this film obviously um, created quite a lot of uh, controversy at the time it was released. It's very very unsettling. Um, so taking the position of what's actually being said by the market. It's very, very unsettling. And it's 
it's showing us very directly what it is like to be the exploited. But the, you know, such is the strength of the mystification that goes on in capitalism that we, we even neuter, we know that there's poverty and we can kind of imagine that there is poverty like this in the world, but we neuter it in our minds. So we do know that the cobalt in our phones is mined by child slaves in whatever country, but we still, even though we know that there's poverty that exists in places like Congo, we just, we can't properly imagine it in the way that it is actually occurring. And this film really goes there. Um, and again, you know, this, this is something that's kind of explicitly stated about the, the poverty economy, that the, that poverty becomes a commodity and becomes neutered. But when we're actually faced with, for example, you know, this terrible scenes of multiple malnourished children, you know, who die basically on camera. Um, and showing the kind of um, uh, physical injuries they have as a result of their malnourishment. It's its absolutely shocking. This is not, you know, what you'd see on a Red Nose Day ad. This is not a feel-good thing. This is not somebody who can, um, this, is, this is not uh, the people experiencing poverty as a fetish to make us feel good about the fact that we in the West feel bad about this poverty. It's, it's so much worse than that. Um but it's interesting as well, you know, the, the not only as is poverty as a commodity, um, something that is um, points to the logic of capitalism. And obviously, we can talk about all these other things that become commodities that if we have a very basic reading of capitalism in terms of workers being exploited, and oh, but actually, you know, this is where there can be a, a solution, because at a certain point, workers don't have enough money to spend on uh, the commodity that they're producing, they're not paid enough, so you have to pay them enough. You know, that's all well and good to a certain degree, but this, this, there is something almost worse in capitalism than this sort of neat um, dialectic that's often pointed to, which is that in terms of the denatured nature of human subjectivity, there is something always worse because we are sort of demented in the way that we desire. So things like debt becomes a commodity, which means that you know, whichever way it goes, if workers aren't paid enough and have to go into debt, then the capitalist, you know, is able to make more money. Poverty becomes a commodity. The image itself becomes a commodity more than materials like, um, you know, cocoa or rubber or whatever, you know, um, commodities would be otherwise, um, you know, mined for capitalism. But it really reminded me as well of um, something that I don't know if you've ever taught like uh, A-level history or whatever, the British Industrial Revolution, you know, there's this sort of obvious idea that like, so the Industrial Revolution came with um, horrors, absolute horrors in Britain, for example. And, you know, the um, average life expectancy in certain cities massively low as you have three-year-olds climbing chimneys, you know, you have all these sort of horrible diseases that come, um, that come up and uh, terrible living conditions. But because of, quote unquote, the Industrial Revolution, um, there is a massive rise in living standards simultaneously over the course of, for example, the 19th century in the UK, where, you know, there's the eight hour work week and weekends are introduced and all these things kind of take place. But these aren't as a result of capitalism. The, the good stuff that happens, <laughs> happens despite capitalism and um, is precisely that which isn't capitalist that was taking place in the 19th century. And obviously in the 19th century, you can say that like having um, in Britain the uh, abject um, exploitation that came along with the Industrial Revolution right in the faces of the bourgeois in Britain, things had to be done. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't 
face the fact that three-year-olds were sweeping chimneys and, and people were, you know, living to the age of 18 in Liverpool or what have you. So, because the point being is that when you, when we, we see, um, a scene in, um, this film about the standard of living of the people who actually have jobs, the people who are employed on the plantation owned by this, um, uh, white, I believe he might be a Belgian, um, person. They have worse living standards than people who were just sort of tribal. You know, they have more, um, higher rates of malnutrition, uh, amongst their children, you know, higher death rates amongst their children. So, Actually, getting the employment and becoming a wage slave is not a step up for um, in the conditions that 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 exist, and rather, and the imperative to pay them less and less and less is obviously the capitalist imperative. So, something that would go against the grain of that is necessary to up their living standards. You know, which again, you know, in in the sort of simplistic sense, and the sort of if you look at um, the market system as a binary and, and take away sort of the libidinal desire factor. Um, in terms of, in terms of the market system, you know, this would, this would mean that there's, you know, people are healthier and there's more people to be employed and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't really work like that because of our denatured subjectivity. Um, but it's, you know, th- th- there is some horrendous scenes in terms of, uh, the, the slave-like nature of the people working f- for this plantation, including, um, you know, kind of, you know, more stereotypical critiques of capitalism, whereby, you know, the, the, the filmmaker shows the plantation owners at a at a um photography art kind of um exhibition taking you know buying photos of their own um slaves effectively working for them and because you know the photos are in black and white this makes them more artistic and he sort of bought these pictures to decorate his office but you know the, the, there are, there are many ways in which um this film sort of points to the um denatured nature of capitalism. Obviously, the um, the cover story that we have is that capitalism is highly utilitarian, it's highly logical, it's the survival of the fittest or whatever. But there are so many ways in which he foregrounds the um, absurd nature of capitalism. And I mean, I won't go into the absurdity as it relates to drive, because I feel like we've done it a lot of times. But um, capitalism, do I go there? Shall I do this? I'm going to wait for a shake of the head. No, no, I'll say, okay, I'll, we'll get into it, into, into the, uh, I feel like I've gone on for a little bit already, so I'll save it. But I'll say now that uh, capitalism and the ideology of promise and death drive are all sort of tied together. And actually, they are the opposite of logical, rational and utilitarian. Um, but, you know, this is this is painted as well um, in the scene that you described about the um, the fact that the uh, photographers the local photographers who take photos for the um for of of weddings um and sort of nice things going on in Congo can only make 75 cents whereas the uh western photographers who are um selling photos to international um news outlets um get paid 50 to 100 dollars but um this is only if they are about something really terrible about death and rape and famine and all this kind of stuff um and the point that i kind of wanted to draw out there is that um, the the economy, there is an economy going on in terms of the local people taking photos at a lower rate of money. Um, and this is, uh, you know, some might say that this is a sort of a capitalist system, but this is some kind of exchange system and this is definitely a market system. But what we have in capitalism is something that is um, not the same as a basic market system. And I think that ideologically, when we just read capitalism as a system of rational exchange and, you know, 
um, oh, you know, uh, these billionaires now funding the space race. Oh, this is efficient and, you know, this is good. And this, these people are sort of getting on with things and this is productive. It's precisely that which isn't capitalistic that in, in an ex- a market of exchange that is productive. But what we have um, at a certain point is that capitalism is death drive. It's death drive marketized. And it's very easy to sort of conflate market with capitalist death, death drive, but they're actually two very different things. And maybe I'll, we can delve into that a bit later on. All right. Let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah. Okay. So I, I um, chose this film uh, partly in relation to our one of our on- ongoing questions um, uh, relating to class uh, and the depiction of class uh, uh, on film. Um, and I think this this film, although this film is about uh, uh, poverty, um, it's a, it's also about working poverty, and it's really about class as a kind of global form of global exploitation. And, and you know the, the the reality of of, of capitalism, uh, precisely in the way that Helen uh, says that, that it, where it is occluded to such an insane degree, right? And this film is very shocking, right? This film is very has some very um, upsetting images. It, 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 there are images of, of children who have recently died. There are images of corpses. There are images of children who are extremely malnourished. Um, it's uh, it's a shocking film. Uh, I think. You know, clearly, deliberately so. Um, partly, point of the film is to not only, I suppose, depict the horrors, but to just depict the the exploitation of the horrors. And and obviously, both of you already discussed the idea of of poverty as a natural resource, um, which is in a way uh, the 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 wager of the film that, that that poverty, seeing as all of the Western aid agencies, and it's very brutal about NGOs. Uh, uh, which he names uh, Doctors Without Borders, UN, and so on, and and he speaks. He has a phone conversation with someone who's researching all of this stuff, in which they discuss the way in which something like seventy to eighty percent of the money sent to um, countries that are suffering um, it runs back to the countries that provide it. Right. So not only are these places of of um, uh, extraction, um, asset stripping, mining, literal mining. There's also a scene where where gold is mined. But the Congolese know it's there. They gather the samples um, for the uh, for the co- the gold companies. But the gold companies are not owned by the Congolese. And Martins asks the Congolese who've gathered the samples, you know, why can't you, in a way, take your own gold? Why don't you have access to it? Meanwhile, the NGOs and the doctors are flying the gold samples as part on their routes, just because they, you know, they that, that that's part of what they're doing. Um, and it's because the Congolese lack uh, the machinery to do so, right? So literally, they, they, they lack the means of production. This is why I think this film is a very good film about class, in the sense that it shows you the brutality of uh, not only the capitalist system, but also these forms of, of I don't know, let's say para-capital exploitation that masquerade as forms of aid and charity. Um, and one of the other major uh, uh, strands of the, the film, I, I hesitate to call it a documentary because it is, it is, but it's a highly uh, unusual, stylized, uh, it's usually categorized as an art film, I suppose you would say, but it's an art, art documentary perhaps in some ways. Um, is is the, his focus and attention on the logo, which is very interesting. So the UN and all of these sorts of things are involved in the Congo, um, often in slightly murky ways. And he, he's kind of annoying lots of people. Like one of his strategies is to be 
very provocative to to but sort of deadpan in a deadpan way you know he's not playing this for last he he just he he gives instructions to the congolese he asks them slightly uh, off-putting questions you know his 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 manner is discomforting it's uncomfortable um you wonder at points whether he there's going to be a violent reaction or some confused reaction because he's really uh being very uh odd and tangential um but it you know, it's it's clear that the part of the what's being sold is obviously the branding, the logos of the the, the um, organisations that purport to be helping, but are in fact contributing in an ongoing way, um, not only to the exploitation but to the image of exploitation. So Renzo Martin's attempt to think through what it would mean to own the means of production is not merely the means of production at the level of um, uh, material extraction, uh, the, the gold, and all of these other extreme natural resources that we we know is in the Congo, but the Congolese do not benefit from whatsoever uh, manifestly. And that's still true, uh, it seems today. Um, but rather to, to, as you've both already mentioned, to, um, if you like, um, own the means of, of the visibilization of, of poverty, right, their own poverty. So I think the scenes with the photographers, the local photographers, they own cameras. And in the end, one of the, the you know, the main reasons already been cited by um, when they go to the doctors and ask if they can take photos for money uh, and they, they give an excuse really ultimately that the photos aren't good enough, right? So, so they have machines, but their machines aren't good enough, right? The Western people taking the pictures of horror and, 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 and you know, sort of um, malnutrition and, and sickness and, and uh, war, consequences of war in the hospital have better cameras. Uh, they have better machines for capturing poverty and misery and, and, and violence. Um, and I think this, this, you know, really raises this question for, for Martin's in his ongoing work, um, which is to say, what would it be like uh, to bring uh, almost like the the ownership or to assist in the ownership of the means of, of production, you know, the recapturing of the means of production in somewhere where the exploitation of everything, including the soil, the minerals, the, you know, as well as the images of the people and their own suffering, like there's almost nothing left to exploit, right? It's, you know, the, the people are starving, the children are dying, you know, even the people who are working cannot afford to pay for their, their, their children. And, you know, when they, when he speaks to the white landowner who buys the artistic photographs, the landowner sort of says, oh, well, who knows what they're spending their money on? Perhaps they're spending it on, you know, getting drunk, you know, and, and this is his excuse. Like when, when Renzo Martins is literally showing him figures about how many children of the plantation uh, workers are, are suffering from malnutrition, according to official records um, from the doctors. Uh, and, and the guy simply says, well, it's, it's, it's kind of their fault, basically. He's saying, you know, well, who knows what they're wasting their money on. Um, extraordinary. Um, so he has Renzo Martins in all of the, the work of his I've seen has a really uncanny knack of, of being able to show aspects of the horror and push a certain aspect of the horror to an absurd degree, which, if you like, shines a light back on the whole. And I think this goes for the sign. So the, the, he brings across the country, uh, he gets people, Congolese people to carry this case with the neon uh, letters of a sign that reads, enjoy poverty, uh, and a little uh, uh, sort of please in the middle. Very, you know, what an absurd thing to bring into the middle of the, uh, you know, sort of 
poor Congolese areas of poor villages and he sets up this neon sign with a with a generator in a few places and and sometimes on a boat going down a river um you know just to to i suppose exacerbate and um enlarge the the question of the absurdity of the of the visual as such and what it means for um the west to depend upon um and indeed uh enjoy images of poverty as part of its own self image um and the kind of horror the abject horror um of that as well as the horror of the the material exploitation um so i i think it's a very good film and it, it did generate a lot of um criticism um and uh sort of um upset um but i think it it's it's uh you know main, maintains its its um sort of trenchant uh quality uh now um a lot you know quite a long time after it was after it was made and indeed he's gone on to do more work in the congo and, and built a white cube gallery there um, and things like this so i yeah i think he's a very uh interesting um artist and and something else beyond an artist but i don't i don't necessarily have a word for it yeah sort of provocateur as well i mean there's something about the subtle facial expressions in this film that i thought were really well captured from the first scene where um, aid workers are um, handing out something to sort of local people and each person, once they receive this package, um, has to pose for a photograph uh, uh, taken by one of these sort of aid workers. And the way that Renzo films it is he he really um, emphasises the facial expression, the sort of smug, heart-warmed facial expression of the person giving out the um the object you know the blankets or whatever and the person taking the photograph so there's there's a real sort of um it really captures the you know indescribable intangible sort of ideological um sentiment felt by like the affect as a result of the ideological cover story that they're participating in that this is you know these people are do-gooders and these people are you know um sort of uh, beings closer to nature who are in need of the help of these people, but you know these these NGOs don't function precisely because they're tied to the logic of neoliberalism to such a degree. And we've talked about this. I mean, this is a huge um, issue in terms of uh, in the British film industry. Um, how governing bodies that were designed originally perhaps to cut against the grain of capitalism have tied themselves to market forces to a degree further than just the regular competitive market system, um, but are sort of facilitating um, the hyper-neoliberal, um, non-competitive, non-market system, which is which is also capitalism. Um, but also um, there was a scene when uh, some Finnish journalists go to uh, witness his art project they'd heard about this art project and obviously had had arrived with the sort of idea that this was you know some kind of uh do-goodery liberal heartwarming art project and when they saw it they're sort of horrified and the the smirks on their faces witnessing oh how stupid this man is you know what how grotesque this art is when actually Renzo is 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 turning the camera in, on them to reveal that they are the potentially the grotesque ones in in relation to their understanding of what's going on yeah I, 
particularly found interesting the argument that he advanced that the UN peacekeepers are really just there to protect the gold mines for the companies. Mm. And that's really what they're there for. Uh, and that these NGOs operate in the areas of the country that benefit them or benefit the people that uh, want them there rather than the native population. There's a scene where Doctors Without Borders is leaving a region with extreme malnourishment, uh, not because there's some other region that has greater need, but because, as it turns out, Doctors Without Borders tends to operate in the parts of the country that are uh, have higher living standards rather than the parts that are really the most desperately poor. And there isn't really a, a straightforward answer to the question of why, but it's interesting to ask, uh, are they operating in those places because they're more comfortable operating there? Maybe they would argue that they can do more good if they're in a place that has a higher baseline level of, of standard of living. But also maybe they're, they're there because they don't want to have to, maybe they get numbed after a while by the experience of perennial routine failure in the places where they really don't have the resources to make much difference. And we, we do, I think, tend to see, you know, I've heard this from a lot of people who have gone on trips to developing countries to provide aid, this feeling that the thing that you learn is that you can't save people. There is no possibility of saving them. And that this has a kind of, of spiritual or ethical impact on the person when they learn this kind of thing. Mm. And I wonder if it, it may also have a bit of a quietist effect on domestic politics in the West. You know, if you have the, the people who are the most upset by capitalism, they're, they're upset by the fact that there is this enormous poverty that produces the luxuries that they consume. And they get very morally concerned about their relation to these products. And they want to avoid consuming products that have been made in this way. Such people, you would think, are the kinds of people who might lead political movements. But if you take them and you induce them to go to a country where they have no real possibility of being able to help or make any difference because their efforts are a drop in a vast bucket, then when they come home, they, they may be completely disillusioned by the very notion of political activity. They may naturalize all of these things as inevitable and unavoidable, and it may have a very powerful quietist effect on them. And I, I think that that happens a lot. I think there are a lot of young people who are interested in global justice, go try to help, and then come back and in their disillusionment, abandon you know, even domestic politics in their own country. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I mean, I was thinking about kind of Kevin Carter, who's a photographer who you know, likely who was taking photos in Rwanda, I think, who who likely committed suicide as a, as a kind of consequence of the horror that he encountered in his his feeling of complicity. I mean, you know, let's not reduce suicide to a single motive, but you know, it often said, I suppose, that, that this was a contributory factor. You know, this encounter with horror, and then the the having to live, I suppose, with a you know, amongst other images, a, a Photograph of a, a a boy clearly suffering from malnutrition with a with a, a vulture basically standing next to the boy waiting for the boy to die and you know these these sorts of images and and you know it's it's very strange in a way to think about the fact that this is part of the world like all of these horrible things exist <laughs> and are real uh, whether we see them or not you know and we we live in this this shared 
place. But of course, the vast majority of the time, we don't see them. And even when we do see these images of horror, you know, as as Helen says, and is is that they are sort of branded for um, almost feel good purposes, like give give twenty dollars to. £10 or whatever to this charity. And if you read literature on the efficacy of charity, and I looked into some of this a while ago, um, I was reading sort of Peter Singer, and I was trying to sort of uh, look at some of these um, arguments. He wrote a book called The Life You Can Save, which is part of his sort of, um, you know, utilitarian argument for redistribution um, via charity, you know, from a utilitarian perspective. Um, And, you know, he looks at the how charities actually use images, not not in the Renzo Martins way. It's a very different <laughs> way of looking at it. But basically, so for example, if you if you use an image of one poor child, this is more effective than if you have a whole group of poor people, because the narcissism of, of the gift giver uh, renders the person giving the money. They want to think that they're giving it to somebody to one person rather than to a group or community or a village but rather to think in a narcissistic way that they've helped this person right so on a a sort of almost subliminal level if you have adverts uh, you know famines and 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 difficult situations you know and you have a photograph of like an impoverished looking child this taps in directly into that that charity getting more money right whereas if you show a picture of family even if you say look their needs are as great if not more or a village or something like this it's not as effective this is one of the arguments i remember from the the book uh which is quite depressing right the idea that that people need to fix on you know a, a, like a in a single individual child that they imagine that they are helping you know yeah it's in large part i think because charity taps into Empathy as its yeah. basis, as its motivator. And empathy tends to be personal. It tends to affix to specific individuals. Uh, policy isn't like that. Policy works in statistics and larger numbers of people. But because it doesn't tap into those feelings of, of whether it's guilt or whether it's a desire to help, it's harder to get people to support policies which at scale might change the situation. Uh, oh, yeah. for sure. I mean, but these are not structural things. You know, I mean, remember Mark Fisher and others, you know, they, they came up with this idea of like, make charity history, you know, after the slogan, make poverty history. It's like, you know, the way in which as this film depicts charity, not only, um, um, I don't know, enables and, and, and continues these these situations in many cases, but also exploits them, you know, exploits the most exploited people further or exploits their land further or their image. Uh, you and know, it and still I, has to operate on the same sort of P- PMC, you know, NGO kind of value, you know, lots of highly paid people and and what have you but it's interesting because it's like really you know if we look at like the the 19th century example in the uk like the the really anti-capital the the non-capitalist move i mean okay so you have you have like an exchange system but because of human subjectivity and our relation to lack and our relation to and the way that we are sort of overwritten by death drive there is this propensity for for more and more and more and this generates surplus value but the real thing is redistribution you know so we can't really get rid of surplus value but we can redistribute but charity sort of like it it um hijacks this the, well it doesn't hijack it sort of neuters 
the possibility for redistribution and individualizes this as sort of a release valve so that so that surplus value and accumulation can go on. Um, but yeah, I mean, like redistribution is really it's a, it's a political issue. It's not a sort of individual sort of self assuaging donation type thing. Yeah, the idea that something is being done allows it to go on. Yeah. Yeah, I think back to in the 19th century when this kind of stuff was going on in Western countries. Uh, you'd have stuff like uh, you know, Emile Zola's Germinal, you know, which would document to a large degree what was going on for an audience that could then take political action potentially on the basis of that. And I think to a very large degree, what's missing is any possibility of this motivating political action, anything beyond just personal giving. And personal giving is never enough to fundamentally change the situation. Martin's, you know, he even wonders if what he's doing counts as significant uh, or, or counts as really meaningfully contributing. I, I think there's a lot of self-questioning in the film where he asks himself, am I actually any better than the people that I'm talking about here? And yeah, and I, I, I think we have to um, see this also as a critique of the art world. You know, I mean, Renzo Martins is an artist. He's very enmeshed in in, in the art world, which... You know, not only the, the point he's making about images and the exploitation of images um, and those who, who take them or make them, you know, the, the, the fact that the people in the photographs do not benefit <laughs> one iota from, from their image being used. Um, and I know that Renzo Martins is, is involved in a kind of Congolese NFT scheme at the moment. Um, so a lot of what he's doing is also... Uh, intra-art world critique um, and of course the art world is is absolutely fundamentally riven with with money uh, that is art washed simply through the galleries whether it's Sackler money or you know Tate obviously based on Tate and Lyle Sugar you know the art the art world and, and the washing of money uh, and exploitation through art right so the idea that art if you like can beautify horror <laughs> is what the art world is, you know? Uh, and it's, it's not just the kind of selling paintings to sort of, um, oil tycoons in, in Saudi or whatever, but it's, it's the entire thing. So his complicity is, um, also self-aware in, in that sense as well, you know, and this is a film also designed to, to show other people in the art world or to demonstrate or to reveal, um, the inescapability of complicity in image making, um, like to call whether it's film or photography or whatever, you know. Um, I mean, it, you know, the Walter Benjamin quote about there is no document of civilization that is not at the same time a document of barbarism is is always true. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. I do think, you know, to go back to the 19th century example, that um, – there's something today about our particular relation to capitalism and our inability to actually understand what we're dealing with. And that in, you know, um, earlier epochs, there maybe was a more, um, a different relationship and understanding to capitalism, partly because of the, you know, the, the nature of the, the, the social orders that existed before capitalism and this idea of, um, having wealth just by having it. So there's almost like a snobbery. For capitalism that maybe, um, you know, is accidentally right in terms of um, concerns to do with its nefarious effects. Um, so if you are, you know, a lord of the manor and it is deemed, you know, um, nouveau or uh, un, uh, uncouth to make money through trade, maybe one has a sort of um, an automatic uh, 
disdain or questioning of trade as such. So I think that there have been sort of previous orders of things where there has been a uh, um, an automatic uh, critique of the economic system, whereas today we are so um, embedded within um, capitalism in every sort of crevice of our being, include, including sort of the 10 minutes lying in bed before we fall asleep, scrolling on the in, scrolling on Instagram or in our education system, in the way that we engage in fitness and all this kind of stuff, that it's really, really difficult for people to um, understand what capitalism really is and how it operates. And I do think, you know, psychoanalysis in terms of its understanding of drive, how drive, um, death drive, uh, develops because of our birth into language and our um, sort of being uh, undercut always by lack and this desire to fill lack, to um, return to a sort of womb-like oneness that we are um, always imagining is possible to achieve because we um, enter into consciousness at a time after our birth. So we always feel like there's something that was before where we existed, where we didn't feel um this this not having, but the not having is precisely the thing that generates language and generates subjectivity. Um, but this really uh, leads to this impetus, this sort of demented impetus to perpetually pursue more and more and more. Um, we we sort of uh, buy into the ideology of promise that there is something that will make us whole and complete, but we never are able to achieve that feeling. So that feeling goes on and on and on. And because um, capitalism sort of taps into that, uh, this is this sort of infinite onward march, which offers a huge amount of um, surplus value, surplus labor that can be um, exploited by sort of a vampiric capitalist class. But, you know, really, I think that unless we understand, we're either shown the sort of the downside of uh, this demented um, tendency to accrue in a way that relates to death drive, um, and we see the effects in the likes of, you know, what the, the level of poverty that's shown in, in this film that we, we really want to disavow. Or we, you know, actually logically understand this process. I don't know if it's possible to get to a political change unless this is sort of really come to terms with. Well, there's been an obfuscation because in the 19th century, it was very clear that when these things were happening, whether they were happening in Europe or in the colonies, that the European states were responsible for the conditions, politically responsible, in the sense that they operated the legal system, they were the authority, they allowed it to happen or encouraged it to happen. And the decolonial process obfuscates this relation by nominally creating a native government, which can then be responsibilized for what happens. And that takes the condition in the Congo and makes it no longer a political question, but purely an individualist, moral, ethical question. So whether we have a duty to help the Congolese is now a, a personal question that we ask ourselves as beneficiaries from the cheap goods that come from Africa. Uh, it's no longer a political question that we ask ourselves as citizens of a you know, giant empire that directly administers affairs in the Congo. And I think that this obfuscation has neutered our ability to think creatively or meaningfully about how to change the situation in the third world, because whenever we begin to discuss it, 
it immediately becomes, well, not it's not our affair because they have a state that's their state. That's their nation, their people with their state that they, you know, uh, and we have to stay out of that because now it's theirs and not ours. And in thinking about the world as, as divvied up into national peoples in this way, nationalism allows us to not confront politically the empire that de facto exists, even as it is denied in purely legal terms. There is a, a global kind of, of uh, imperial system which administers trade, but because the politics of the world is split up into nation states, it is never any particular polity's responsibility that this system operates. And every polity can frame itself as being subject to that system and the incentive structure that that system creates in much the same way that every rich business person goes, well, I can't pay my workers more, I'd be at a competitive disadvantage. Oh, I can't, you know, pay more for the goods I import from Africa, because if I did that, then my country would be at a competitive disadvantage to, to some other country. And the Americans say this with respect to the Chinese, and the Chinese say it with respect to the Americans, and, and so on. Uh, this, the way that we've politically organized things occludes the degree to which this is all fundamentally a global problem that involves all of us. And when we say, oh, well, you're a Westerner in the European country or the Western country, so you're not one of them. You're not a citizen of that country. And therefore, the politics of what goes on there isn't your business. That becomes an excuse to reduce one's relation to purely the charitable relation and purely the relation of individual altruism or giving or, or moral or ethical obligation. And it it strips any possibility of a political change, which would involve recognizing that if two people, if, if Americans and Africans are involved in trade, and that trade is not reciprocal, but exploitative in character, that there is a political power dynamic that is at play there that requires a structure or institution which can answer to that dynamic and account for it and be held politically responsible for the way that it operates. And the nation state system is a denial of this reality, fundamentally. And, and that's why I've always been of the position that we cannot just think in terms of nation states or national peoples, because the world does not work that way. And in talking about it that way, and in pretending that there's a bunch of different peoples all that have their own states that represent them, we make it impossible to deal with the reality of global capitalism. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I think it's manifestly obvious that former colonies, it's not like they stop being exploited the moment they are quote unquote independent. And I think, on, you know, in a separate way, the Iraq-Russia situation uh, has revealed some of the weaknesses of <laughs> Europe in particular, pretending that there would never be any war again and that, you know, you could, you could, uh, let's say, buy energy from other countries, uh, pre presupposing or presuming that there would never be any issue with that. Um, I think there's something of a kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a liberal free market fantasy that, that if you like, the, the global markets is, is part of a solution to the problem of war, because in a way, the free market is you know, a form of diplomacy and diplomacy is war by other means. <laughs> so the free market is in a way imagined to to solve 
or preemptively solve the problem of war. And of course, it this is not what what has happened. So I think, you know, we, we've run some pieces recently uh, by Thomas Fazi and others about deglobalization. And suddenly, even though that was a kind of leftist slogan in the 90s, you know, I remember the, the anti-globalization movement. Now the, the elites have suddenly all become <laughs> at least nominally uh, anti-globalizers uh, because they realize the, the limitations of, of actually what happens when you denationalize things or you, you, you put all of your manufacturing in other countries in China and so on uh, because they become a weapon of, 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 of you know, of conflict potentially. And certainly if, uh, you know, if, 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 if a country owns all of your debt, uh, as China owns as the debt of of uh, America and others, it's uh, you know you're, you're you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position for yeah, sure. One of the scenes that really stuck with me in this film is you know, that the father who works for fifty cents every three days and has all these mouths to feed. You know, how Martin says to him, "Well, I don't think you're ever going to get paid better because the Westerners wouldn't accept an increase in the price." of coffee. They wouldn't accept that. Uh, and you've been doing this work for 10 years and you haven't been paid better. And I don't think in another 10 years it's going to change. I think you're going to be in precisely this situation you know, for the rest of your life. And he says that all very bluntly, I think, in large part to see if the guy will react to it. Uh, but in, uh, you know, I think this is really the fundamental fact that is in the way of change that the Westerner will not accept a price increase in basic goods. And any political movement that involves, uh, that would be committed to doing anything which would result in that price increase can't win an election. And that's the, the hard reality. And as long as it remains the case that Westerners will not vote for political movements committed to economic policies that raise the basic cost of, of goods and services, uh, it's not possible to change the situation in its fundamentals. And you can play around at the edges of it with all sorts of different kinds of private NGO, uh, charity, individual action, you know, up to and including you know, what, what Martins is doing. But that commitment to not paying more for basic things makes it impossible to bring about global justice. And that's a political issue. The political issue is that the Western voter will not vote for a government that will do that. Um, just won't do it. And on the other end of the scale, in terms of this sort of global issue, is um, capital mobility. How, how can we operate? How can states operate in a world where there is a competition of who can house the wealthiest's money with paying less and less and less tax how yeah how can how can how can a state operate as a, in the way that a state should or needs to operate in order to create a decent situation for the people living in the you know in the in the area that the state of the state's purview if the money can just eluded or its tax income can elude it. It just, this leads to such perverse incentives. Yeah. There has to be something there. We have to, states would have to come together to globally manage these flows. And the only alternative to that would be to dissolve the system 
Uh, and to go back to individual nation states that exist in a much more thoroughgoingly and overtly competitive environment. Uh, and those are really the two alternatives to this. You know, the alternative to this contradictory system of global system of trade, but nation state based politics is either to make everything territorial and state based or to create some form of global politics that could manage these flows in a way that would be better. Which would but, you prefer, Benjamin? Oh, I would, I would prefer managing the flows. Okay. I would prefer it, managing the flows, but uh, I don't see how we can do it. Uh, yeah. And it, I, this is the thing that really frustrates me is that the going back to the nation state thing, it will result in more straightforward imperial behavior and more conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would result in a war between the United States and China within, you know, 10 years. But, but why? Why couldn't countries just sort of be self-sufficient and just produce their own things? Why would well, it because currently war? they're not self-sufficient. And so during the period of transition, if you mm. were to try to transition to something like return to the nation state, you need an excuse for why you're going to disrupt all of these flows of things mm. and an excuse for why the prices of everything is increasing. And the only excuse that is available is a conflict with a foreign state. So if you were to try to do, say, you know, real protectionism and you know, cut off the, the trade links to the countries where this exploitation occurs, uh, the only way you could get the voter to accept that is if there was a national security crisis motivating that behavior. Hmm. Because the voters otherwise, they will not accept the living standard reduction. As soon as the living standard reduction hits, even if they'll vote for a government which will take measures that move in that direction, like, say, Brexit, uh, as soon as the living standard reduction hits, there's immense voter anguish over it and immense frustration, uh, you know, in large part because the Western governments do not provide a sufficiently high quality uh, set of public services or safety nets to make the transition manageable for the citizen. So if the citizen is seeing an increase in the cost of luxury goods imported from developing countries, that will also come alongside an increase in costs for basic things like energy and housing. And that will make the situation politically unacceptable. Even standing apart from whether you know, maybe Western voters could be persuaded to accept an increase in the cost of imports. Mm -hmm. But because at this point, even basic construction materials are imported, the costs of housing, the costs of, of all sorts of very, very ordinary things, oil, gas, energy, is tied to these global flows. So the Westerner can't maintain any kind of, of semblance of anything remotely resembling their living standard uh, if there is disruption to the flows. And so anyone who wants to go back to the nation state must first account for how do you disrupt the flows without undermining the condition of the Western worker to the point at which the Western worker will not tolerate it and will just vote for a return to status quo. Yes. And the only way I can think of <laughs> that you could do it would be to start a conflict with another state and say, well, because there's a war, we have to, you know, blitz mentality our way through it. Yes. It's quite a grim way of putting it. <laughs> um, so it no, would be much better to come up with a way of managing the flows collectively, globally, with some kind of institution that meaningfully is responsive uh, to 
to all of these concerns. But there is no possibility of that right now because there is no legitimacy for such a thing, in part because the existing set of international institutions perform so poorly that any attempt to replace them with anything else has to deal with the legitimation baggage which those institutions possess. Anything that you would try to create will be viewed the way the World Bank is viewed, the way the WTO is viewed. Even if it were to be something that was meaningfully different, the mere fact that it is an attempt to globally manage flows would cause it to be associated with these other structures. So it's politically dead in both directions. There's a hard block to either way of resolving it. It's not easy. And then obviously, like, people don't really conceive of things in terms of threats of what an alternative could be you know so it's hard to imagine yeah you say if it's a, if it's a return to a nation state and this is you know a surefire way to end up in world war three that it's hard for people to imagine that because it's you know it's 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 in an alternative reality that hasn't actually ever ex- well, existed prior to the sort of international world that we have now so if that's the alternative and that's the alternative as a sort of like potential potentially very bad thing. It's hard to sort of conceptualize it in terms of motivating for, you know, a change within the system that we have at at present. Yeah. Japan attacked the United States because the United States cut off oil flow to Japan and put Japan in a a terrible situation where its military could not continue to operate easily without attacking the United States and extracting that oil from the United States. Uh, You know, the, the Germans felt pushed to go after the Soviet Union in part to get the oil and gas that was there in the Soviet Union for their tanks. Um, Once you cut the flows, then states get into these situations where the only way they can get access to the things that they want is to go get them. And uh, that, especially if you disrupt flows in such a way that people feel a real need for a bunch of things that they suddenly don't have, And the only way they can get those things is to go after somebody else. I think that's the logic of it. Definitely. Anyway, we're at about an hour. So we're going to wrap it up. But we're going to go over to our B-side for our Patreon listeners. And we're going to take care of them. So thank you guys so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.